0: Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's August 8th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, the day after a huge but almost completely meaningless uh, special election, midterm election. Uh, joining me, Haley Bird of the Weekly Standard and Jim Swift, who really is the guy that makes this podcast happen. So you uh, you all stayed up late uh, uh, waiting on the, the latest returns, I'm guessing, Haley?
1: Yeah. So I was watching the Ohio 12th District sure. special election, and I was up pretty late. Um, we still don't really know who has won it officially. Uh, it's really, it's a really slim race. Um, the Republican Troy Balderson is ahead by less than one percent, uh, meaning one thousand seven hundred and fifty-four votes. Um, but there are about three, three hundred, three thousand provisional votes and five thousand absentee ballots that still haven't been counted. So we re- won't have an answer on that until. 10 days from now.
0: Yeah, that's so. a, that's that's one of the interesting uh, twists in, in Ohio law, the provisional ballots. They can't count them legally, cannot count them for 10 days. So everybody assumes that uh, the Republicans have held that seat just barely. But we don't actually know uh, what I thought was interesting, of course, was Listening to the, uh, the over-analysis of a seat that, um, I mean, <laughs> I keep saying this, and, you know, they're going to have a rerun. The same two candidates are going to be on the ballot in 90 days. So I, <laughs> my 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 advice to Troy Balderson is uh, don't actually put too much art up on the walls of your new office. He's probably going to, you know you know, go there, put a box and then head back to the district. But... You know, we're we're hearing some happy talk. The president uh, was spiking the football about this. As some Republicans are saying, and and legitimately so, a win is a win. The Look, guy can't um, lose. There, the there guy are can't no lose. moral victories, right? Can't right. lose, Charlie.
1: But it's still they still spent you know, millions of dollars on this. And if you look at in 2016, Pat Tiberi was the congressman. He won by 36%. -hmm. Um, So it's just a far cry from the one, like 0.9% that Balderson won by in this race, which is just, it's a consistently Republican district since the 80s. Um, So to have that much of a swing in several months is really a warning sign for Republicans, but of course, you know, they're, they're happy that they still have the seat uh, as it appears right now. So
0: yeah, it could have been worse, but it was pretty awful. And you know, those data points that you just mentioned, I mean, Pat T. Berry won back in 2016, 66.5 to 29.8%. So as you pointed out, that's 36, 37 points, that district, he won by an even bigger margin, as far as I can tell, two years before that, the Democrats have only won this seat once since 1938. And depending on whose numbers you look at, there are around 70, I said last night on TV, 68 Republican held house districts that are less Republican than Ohio 12. So, you know, we, we, we could obsess about the provisional ballots and who's going to win or, or or not win for the next uh, 90 days in this seat. But the overall trend is pretty dramatic i was I was I was sort of slightly amused listening to people saying, well you know who who gets the the credit for you know putting Trey Balderson over the top? Look, we shouldn't even be talking about this race. We should not know their names. we should uh, w- we shouldn't even know there was an election. This is one of the reddest districts in a you know key swing state. and the fact that it's uh, a close race that shouldn't have been close, that it is a an endangered seat that shouldn't have been endangered. That that's pretty much the story, isn't it, Haley?
1: Sure. And, you know, you saw the same talking points for the Republicans that they used in the Pennsylvania 18 election back this spring, where when they saw that the the polls were getting tight in the last stretch of the campaign, they started to sort of bash their candidate and say, you know, he was uninspiring. He was not a good fundraiser and all, and all of those things to sort of try to explain away why they weren't performing on this. Um, and it's just funny to me because you have, like, people saying that on the on background, off the record, like campaign officials saying that. And then when Balderson was ahead, they're like, oh, we've been with him every step of the way. So it's it's just this very, like, blatant um, partisan thing going on. But, um, yeah, it, it's it doesn't really matter because we he's only there for three months if he does win.
2: Trivia but, que- twi- yeah. trivia question here. Okay. When Robert Byrd died. Someone was appointed to replace him. Do you remember the name of this person?
0: Okay, I don't. Haley.
2: I don't either. Cart Goodwin.
0: Wow. Yeah. And he was in office for how long?
2: Uh, Pretty much around the, <laughs> <or> around the <laughs> same length of time. And Republicans from scheduling this election, 90 days, literally 90 days before the actual election, because it's the House and you have to have the election every two years, run the risk of... Turning what might be a really crappy, expensive victory. Because, as you pointed out, Haley, millions upon millions of dollars, they had to spend probably way more than they would have if Pat T. didn't insist on becoming chair of the Ohio Roundtable or whatever he did and just you know, let it be a normal election. Uh, we, we basically were going to, we might have our own Cart Goodwin
0: in Ohio. Yeah, we we just don't know. Um, And by the way, you also point out how much money was spent in that particular district. Uh, There's just not enough money to spend, what, five, six million dollars in each of the vulnerable uh, congressional districts. Um, There are a couple of other races that have popped up uh, over the up on the radar screen as well. We're not going to get into them, but uh, but apparently the Trump uh, magic touch work in a Republican primary, maybe at least for now. In Kansas, there's a lot of K's here. Chris Kobach uh, looks like uh, he might eke out uh, a primary win over the incumbent governor in Kansas. Uh, He's, of course, is the is the head of that, uh, um, shall we say, a somewhat eccentric uh, voter fraud uh, commission that the president uh, had. Uh, but we'll we'll see a little bit later. Uh, but the big story uh, this morning, Haley, and I want to get your sense about this is is whether or not the indictment of uh, the indictment of uh congressman chris collins from new york um you know wh- whether this is is going to be just one of those blips or or whether or not this is going to be a a, a problem for congressional republicans who don't need one more uh, problem the feds announced insider trading charges against him and his sons this morning and of course uh, collins is uh, is gonna be obviously familiar to some folks because he was an early supporter of Trump's presidential campaign. I believe he was the was he the first member of the House to endorse Donald Trump?
1: He was. yes,
0: okay. so give me your take on on this uh, coming you know in in, in August uh, this sort of came as a uh, well, well, was it a surprise to you?
1: Well it was we we knew about some of these allegations yeah. before because they had been reported, but it it was sort of a surprise to everyone. We didn't know the timing on this um, and there were a lot more details. Obviously, in the, in the indictment and in the SEC complaint that was filed, so it, it basically indicts him for insider trading. Um, he was a board member, I believe, of Innate Immunotherapeutics, which is an Australian mm-hmm. biotech company, um, and he he knew about this drug trial and the 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 results of that trial before uh, it was publicly available, and. Uh, the trial was not successful, and he knew that the stocks were going to go down significantly and sort of just put a nail in the coffin for this company. And so he called his son, according to this indictment, literally like 15 seconds after he got an email um, telling him the results of the trial. And so he he told his son, his son's fiance found out they all, they had all invested in this company. Um, and so what you see after this, in, in the three days between Collins finding out and the public uh, disclosure of what happened in the test trial is just this frantic effort to get rid of all their stocks and their shares in this company. Um, Cameron, who is Collins' son, sold 1.4 million stocks, which is not very subtle. Um, and, and you just have these hilarious um, interactions. Like Steven Zarsky, who is the, the father of Cameron's fiance, uh, who was also involved in this, um literally told someone that Cameron's literally told Cameron's alibi, which was that he intended to purchase a house so he would have an excuse for the timing of his own trades. so it, it was just very blatant and um you know you, the, Collins himself lied to the FBI about this. he said that he had
0: never a good idea
1: yeah, never a good good idea so he he said he told them that he hadn't talked to Cameron about this um, and they have call logs they uh, Collins himself was actually at the White House for the congressional picnic in 2017. And there's a photo of him on his phone uh, that I just saw a few minutes ago um, at about 7.30 p.m., which is what the call logs would uh, indicate. So it's, it's well, pretty damning.
0: Yeah, but Collins' attorneys, of course, are saying that, uh, that uh, he's going to be exonerated. He's going to push back. He's going to challenge these charges. And they're pointing out that not even the government is alleging that he personally made any trades. So uh that, that that he did not dump any of the stock based on this insider trading. Is is that a defense that's likely to, to fly?
1: Probably not. It's it's true that he lost millions of dollars on this and he couldn't personally trade his uh shares in this company, but he tipped off his son and multiple members of his family and his son's fiance's family about this and he lied to the fbi he, so uh, both of those charges are really serious
2: here, here's an interesting tweet from uh, mike debonis who's a congressional reporter for the washington post he tweeted in january of 2017 <laughs> overheard in the speaker's lobby do you know how many millionaires i've made in buffalo in the past few months chris collins on his cell phone in the speaker's lobby in congress reported it by a reporter um we're probably going to find out a lot of who those millionaires might be or used to be.
0: You know, uh, I I I don't. It's it's too early to know. But you you do wonder whether or not this becomes nationalized as a if 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 the Democrats decide to make this a culture of corruption issue, sort of circa two thousand and six. You might remember, you know, back then you you had a couple of uh, random bad actors in the in the Republican majority that. That were effectively, uh, you know, na- nationalized. Of course, the the Democrats have a somewhat difficult job doing this as long as ah, uh, as uh, Bob Menendez sits in the United States Senate. But you really get a sense that the Republicans have their own swamp problem. And Absolutely. and I I mentioned on the podcast yesterday that I've been watching the the Manafort trial. I'm just I'm just I'm so struck by the multiple layers of self-dealing how grotesque uh, the swampy behavior is that that the average american cannot possibly relate to you know the the kinds of these kinds of insider the, the you know the special uh you know insider dealing the uh, the shell companies all of this stuff and you wonder whether or not at some point it reaches a critical mass and whether or not this is going to be a weight on Republicans nationwide, I, I think it's too early to know. But we've seen this happen in the past. But also, Haley, the whole line, you know, that you know Donald Trump drains the swamp. Mm-hmm. Um, this this goes pretty directly against that particular brand. I'm talking about that this whole miasma of corruption that that we're sort of getting out of Washington and out of the out of the federal courts.
1: Sure. And and you had Paul Ryan come out this morning and say, you know, I'm going to remove him from the House Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, which isn't well, maybe it's energy and natural mm-hmm. resources. I have to look that up. Um, it he He's removing him from the committee, but he hasn't called on him to resign or step down. Uh, neither has Nancy Pelosi. And so the point you made, too, I saw Chris Hayes from MSNBC make, which was, you know, as long as Bob Menendez is here, it doesn't really help Democrats if they want to go high on this. So um, it, it is an interesting question, um, but it's also not not every Republican is doing things as blatantly as Chris Collins did in this situation. Um, but it, it does have like adverse impacts for Republicans, for sure. Are
0: there other members of the House who owned the same stock? There are. Yes, you know that?
1: There are. Jim, Jim has a list.
0: Mike Conway from Texas. Oh.
2: Uh, Doug Lamborn. Uh, I believe he's from Colorado. Uh, who else? Uh, Billy Long uh, from Missouri and uh, John Culberson uh, from Texas and uh, former HHS secretary and congressman Tom Price, uh, who owned 4, 461,238 shares of the stock, which we should note was was actually sort of like a penny stock. That's what sort of is weird about all of this. This wasn't like... Pharma, you know, like a big pharma stock, or Apple, or Facebook, or Google. This this isn't something that like a normal person. And I mean, my personal belief is the the easiest way for members of Congress to avoid any appearance of impropriety is to outsource their investing to a blind investor who makes decisions not subject to their their regulatory or oversight authority. Um, I mean, how how many members of Congress own stock in Facebook, and then? I would be interested to in know how many, yeah. how many of them own Facebook stock and then are complaining about diamond and silk.
0: Yeah, but, but, but this, is, this is why being in Congress apparently is a lot different than, say, working at the Weekly Standard, right? Because, you know, Jim, you've never given me any stock tips. You've never said, hey, I can hook you up with this really sweet deal. <laughs> um, and 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 apparently those conversations go on. Uh, you know, Haley, you, you mentioned something I I had meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about uh, the Ohio special election. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi's name. You know, the Democrats, uh, you know, continue to stick with her. You know, despite the fact that she's one of the best talking points Republicans have. It it, it is. It is to me a little bit like the, the definition of insanity: doing the same thing over and over again. Hey, let's let's run with Nancy Pelosi as the as the symbol of of our party, um, and of course she became an issue again in Ohio, and the Democrat in this particular case, Danny O'Connor, had made it very clear that he would not support her for Speaker. Um, and your your thoughts on 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 this, the way this is this is playing out? It strikes me that. That if, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, I'm not even speculating this, but if Nancy Pelosi were to say, you know what, I am stepping down and we're going to have a new leader next year, that takes away a talking point for Republicans nationwide and it gives, um, Democrats, uh, you know, a, a, I would think it would give them a boost or am I overreading this?
1: I mean, I, I think you have a point there and I think Republicans for sure do enjoy attacking Nancy Pelosi, um, Several members have mentioned this to me that, you know, they think Donald Trump wants to, like, bring her up during the 2020 campaign as a foil to his own policies. So if if she were to step down, that would be um, sort of bad for Republican talking points in general. But, you know, they have a lot of other things they could talk about. Um, The reason that so many... Democrats that are running there most of them who have like, said that they're not going to support Pelosi are new They have not been in the house before um, There are several members in the house who think that new leadership should happen But a, a lot of the Democrats who are already there who are running for reelection are not going to split with Nancy Pelosi um, She's very good at knowing where her conference is um, Whereas the House Republican conference just in the past year and a half has not been very good at counting votes, um, keeping members in line. Just looking at the healthcare situation, like that would not happen under Nancy Pelosi um, because she she knows where her members are. Um, and and Paul Ryan hasn't been that kind of a speaker. And I don't know if that speaks to a kind of individuality in the Republican Conference or or hmm. or what but um it it is an interesting dynamic uh, i think it's too early to tell but one thing that threw a wrench into all of this was that joe crowley was like the number one contender to replace her and and now that he's just not going to be in congress anymore after his primary defeat like that just changes the dynamics completely
0: but he, he can, rather you still dramatic. be speaker <laughs> he, he he could, but I would say it's now somewhat more unlikely. Uh, <laughs> no, Paul Ryan moving very quickly. Um, I would say surprisingly, in some sense, because uh, I mean Collins can still run for re-election. It's an overwhelmingly Republican district, so you know as where we're sitting right now, it seems likely that uh, that that Collins will be on the ballot and will re- return to to Congress, which Paul Ryan won't. Um, speaking of Paul Ryan. Um, uh have Haley, have you read uh, Mark Leibovich's uh, uh, sort of farewell interview with uh, with Paul Ryan in the New York Times Sunday magazine?
1: I did read it.
0: It is it's rather extraordinary.
1: It Isn't is. It? I did think so. I think one thing that stuck out to me was um just the way that Ryan I think Leibovich had showed him this tweet from Trump mm-hmm. and Ryan just basically said, oh, the president is just messing with you. He's trolling you guys. He wants to get a rise out of you. And it was like this like big policy thing that he was talking about. Um, and it's it just goes to show this culture of just shrugging off what the president says. And, you know, I don't know if Trump cares that nobody in Congress takes him at his word, um, but that's the situation. And, it, you know, Trump, I mean, Ryan himself actually said that in a press conference shortly after that interview took place. He said, oh, I think the president's just trolling you. So that's that's the new line that Ryan has adopted in these final months of his speakership.
0: Yeah. And there's a couple of things that strike me about it, which which is that, you know, Ryan has clearly fought through what his role is and and the, and the strategy that he has, which is basically to avoid pissing matches in order to get things done. And and he defines his role as my job, my unique position here is to get legislation passed, to to get people, you know, to get laws uh, laws uh, enacted and and to help people's, you know, lives, which you know sounds very good, but of course this is a a a different trajectory from where Paul Ryan has been most of his career, which was as an intellectual moral leader of the conservative movement. So essentially, what he said is, rather than. Staking out these positions and standing for these principles, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, sublimate that to my role as, you know, super legislator, even though I'm not going to be probably able to get any legislation passed between now and the end of the year. The other line that I think has raised a lot of eyebrows is the one where he says, basically, you folks have no idea what goes on behind yeah. closed doors, right? The, yeah. You know, all of the tragedies averted, this tragedy averted, that tragedy averted, that good thing happened. And, of course, Levovich asked him, like, what tragedy? <laughs> hey, maybe, hey, you know, would you like to share a story of a tragedy averted? And Ryan at that point says, I I know Um, I probably said more than I should have, which is <laughs> probably true. But I suppose this would be a story that you would hear a lot of. From you know Trump world is that okay? I keep my mouth shut. I don't push back, but I prevent a lot of bad things from happening. And someday you'll realize, you know, you ought to be grateful to me for that.
1: Mm-hmm. And and what that reminded me of was uh, I think it was spring of 2017 when Trump wanted to pull out of NAFTA, and you had. Uh, Sonny Perdue and, and another member mm-hmm. of his cabinet, you know, basically show him the electoral map and where that would affect Americans. Um, and most of the people who would be hurt by that were people who voted for Donald Trump. Um, And, and that was that, you know, sort of intercepting Trump with a bad idea and saying, please don't do that uh, behind the scenes is you know, what Ryan seems to be referring to. Uh, you know, you have the same thing, reports that Trump has wanted to fire Mueller multiple times. So things like that are, is what that reminded me of. But the fact that Ryan can't really point to anything just sort of hurts his case on that because there's so many things he hasn't been able to stop. You know, you you haven't been able to stop the Section 232 tariffs. You haven't been able to stop uh, various trade wars from happening. You weren't able to stop Helsinki um, or or Trump siding with Vladimir Putin over the U.S. intelligence community so it's it's a tit-for tat situation. like you can't really count in public how many times you know you stopped something bad from happening versus how many bad things have actually happened,
0: yeah, not not a surprise. The histories of this era are going to be rather um, re- remarkable. There is one thing in the story that I thought that made me sit back and think, okay, you know i've I've known I've known Paul Ryan for more than twenty years, and I think I know him pretty well and what his thinking was. But I did get an insight. That or at least a possible insight here. Um, Let me just read you a a, a passage because this this really I thought was 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 pretty interesting. One lesser known part of Ryan's story is that his father was an alcoholic. The speaker notes this briefly in a book, but rarely speaks of it. He started drinking when I was 12, 12. Ryan told me those four years were tough years. When I asked how Ryan pressed his lips and stared at his lap. He was an alcoholic, he said he was just an alcoholic. He mentioned that he became very close with his mother during those years and always sought out mentors. I was wary of I was wary of slapping some dry by psychoanalysis on Ryan. But there is a classic notion in psychology that the children of alcoholics learn to accommodate difficult personalities. They tend in many cases to be pleasers, avoidant of strife and mindful of not inciting. Whatever combination of factors and mentors form Paul Ryan, this skill set would seem to suit his current predicament. I deal with conflict constantly, he told me. I have strangely developed a great new respect for temperament. Um, now, again, I, I, I don't want to engage in psychoanalysis, but that's an aspect of, of of Paul Ryan that I've never talked with him about. The fact that he had an abusive alcoholic father and there is that, you know, dime store psychoanalysis that, uh, that the children of alcoholics, you know, tend to develop these coping mechanisms for dealing with erratic, difficult people. And, you know, we, a lot of us have been scratching our heads about, you know, the, the, the approach that Paul Ryan has taken to Donald Trump. Does that strike you as at all plausible, either one of you?
2: It's an interesting theory, Charlie, and it's it's uh, it's not one I actually knew. I
0: appreciate your caution on this.
2: Well, no, it's 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 not something I ever knew about Paul Ryan, to nope. be honest. And um, it, I, I've never dealt with such adversity myself, and so mm-hmm. um, everyone copes and deals with things in different ways. And um, you know, it, it, when, when you deal with something like that as a as a kid, it's it's going to it's going to impact how you. In, form your decisions for the rest of your life. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm i just uh, not really stonewalling yeah. here, but it's just, you know, it, it well, is, it know. is, it is it's, new it's, news it's, to it's, me, but it, it, it's something to think about and consider because uh, I, I, I haven't been in that chair
0: well and I also thought that Lebovich did a good uh, good job in 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 talking about you know what what Ryan is thinking about with the future and you know there's been a lot of speculation he's going to end up at AEI which I personally think would be a great match for him you know that he wants to think through these issues of tribalism you know think through the you know what what is the future of of the of the Republican Party and Lebovich basically goes yeah you can do all of that but you kind of have an important position right now where you can do things why would you wait until then to think about these things? And, of course, that's, again, one of the paradox of, uh, paradoxes of, of Paul Ryan that, in a sense, he seems to have put off the I'm going to engage in this period of introspection you know, after I leave this position in which I have you know, tremendous ability to actually you know, do things, if, 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 in fact, he does have the ability to do anything at all. Am, am I right, Haley, in, in saying that Basically, from now until the the end of Paul Ryan's speakership, there's not likely to be any major legislation other than passing ongoing spending bills?
1: Yeah, I I think you're right in that. I don't think they're going to address immigration, um, even though the president wants them to pass a comprehensive immigration reform. Um, So you're correct on that. And and Paul Ryan's life that he really wanted to do something on was entitlement reform. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump, you know, crossed that off the list saying, I'm never going to touch uh, Social Security or, or these programs while I'm president. So that it sort of stopped Ryan from being able to approach something that he's, you know, talked about for a long time. Um, another, one of the things that bothered me in the profile, um, my former colleague Joe Perticone mentioned that, you know, basically every Paul Ryan profile mentions that he is this uh, Ayn Rand reading, mm-hmm. think tank conservative. Uh, but none of them have mentioned, well, at least recently, like this one didn't mention just how much the deficit and debt and, you know, like a lot of spending has gone up under Paul Ryan. Um, his, his speakership has been characterized at least in the past year by this, you know, massive two year budget deal that, you know, busted the budget control act caps, um, the, the deficit is going up above a trillion because of uh, tax cuts that don't pay for themselves. So there's all of these fiscal issues that Paul Ryan in the past has had strong opinions about that he just sort of threw out the window as speaker. And, and this profile didn't really address that.
0: You know, that's a, that's a really good point. And, of course, this is the this is really one of the tragedies that his entire career was based on You know warning about that debt bomb. You know, and I, and I've said before, I I probably talked to him a hundred times about you know the 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 danger of uh, of a debt crisis, the intergenerational transfer of wealth, uh, how we needed to rein in the deficit, and his speakership will. I mean, when 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 you look back and just just look at the hard numbers of what happened to the national debt and the deficits when he was in power, it's it is not going to be pretty. The other aspect that I don't think that he, um, you know, you mentioned the Ayn Ran a lot of things. You know, we'll go back to you know you read Ann Rand. But the the immediate pre-Trump Paul Ryan was also very, very intensely interested in issues of poverty and central city renovation. You know, he dealt with people like uh, like Bob Woodson, traveled around the country, dealing you know uh, you know talking to people in community organizations, activists, organizers, church groups, uh, nonprofits that were we're actually trying to make a difference in some of the most difficult neighborhoods in the country and you know when you think about the trajectory that he was going there whether it was a a compassionate reformist conservatism and the direction the Republican Party is taking now i think it's rather striking and also it seems to have been sort of erased from the you know the the collective memory that that all of that work has kind of okay you know we're going to remember him for and and i you know i And I think you're going to remember him for, you know, his his relationship with Donald Trump and the things that you're mentioning, uh, Haley. Uh, Thank you both for joining me uh, today. Um, We now have, uh, what, uh, 10 days to wait to see who wins Ohio 12. And by the way, probably by by tomorrow, we'll have forgotten about the election completely. Uh, And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast, which was brought to you today by Lending Club. For decades, credit cards have been telling us to buy it now and pay for it later with interest Despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control fast. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high-interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. So go to LendingClub.com standard. Check your rate in minutes. Borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com standard. LendingClub.com standard. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Again, thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.